welcome to the Take 15 podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most thoughtful and accomplished people. On today's episode, Dr. Ashby Monk. We talk about a lot of things, including climate change, Google Maps for investment portfolios, and why the black swan of COVID-19 may turn out to be a green swan. It is one of the most thought-provoking conversations I've had in a long time. Ashby is the Executive and Research Director of the Stanford Global Project Center and a member of CFA Institute's Future of Finance Advisory Council. His latest book is The Technologized Investor, Innovation Through Reorientation. Before we start, a quick plug for next week's episode. It's the first in a short series I'm calling The Enterprising Investor Interview. I'll be talking to three long-time contributors to the Enterprising Investor blog, CFA Institute's highly respected forum for provocative analysis and investment. And now, on with today's show. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Ashby as much as I did. Ashby Monk, welcome. It's really great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, live from my home. Yeah, so you're joining us from California, um, and you're into, what is it, your 70s in terms of days on lockdown? How are you holding up? <sighs> the hair is getting longer. Um, I did manage to give the dog a haircut the other day, but I haven't brought myself to giving myself one. Uh, I'm, you know, look, all things considered, given everything going on in the world, um, we're super lucky. Like, we haven't been affected in terms of um, COVID, and so... You know, we're we're definitely feeling the cabin fever here with five of us in the house, but, you know, making the best of it. Yeah. Any good habits you've started during lockdown that you think will persevere after lockdown? It's an awesome question. Yeah. So uh, gardening. I was never a huge gardener. Um, now I understand uh, how it can keep you from losing your mind. Uh, planted 15 fruit trees. Oh, that's impressive. Um, so I'm going to be ready to be living off the land if this really if this really takes a turn for the worse here. Um, I'll be eating uh, loquats, jujubes, and figs, uh, which are my my drought resistant fruit trees that I've planted. <laughs> so, that sounds awesome. Yeah, that's, it's pretty fun. Yeah, I'm trying to. You've been keeping busy. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So. We're going to talk about a lot of different things over the next, I guess, 15 plus minutes, but I want to start with a really basic question because I think you are the first financial geographer I have ever met. And I'm guessing that just as I didn't know what a financial geographer was before reading about you, some of the people who are listening may also not know. So a really basic question, what exactly is a financial geographer? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's an awesome question. I get it a lot. The program I did at Oxford is kind of a rare program. We do have that degree here in the U.S., but it's usually at state schools like Wisconsin or University of Washington. Um, financial geography is a subset of economic geography, uh, which which is really a discipline that's all about trying to understand and explain um, the distribution, the congregation of all economic activity. And so when you think about what is financial geography as a subset of economic geography, well, it means we're trying to understand why capital uh, flows to certain places, why it doesn't flow to certain places. Um, Who are the actors that determine the flow of capital? How do they behave? What are their constraints? Um, As financial geographers, because we take a bottom-up perspective, so like we're building 
I mean, we don't really love this word maps, but really granular maps of the bottom up perspective of where finance is taking place. Um, we tend to love things like alternative data um, and how you integrate alternative data into your decision making. It gives you a much richer understanding of the things you're investing in, the assets that are you know cash flowing, or even the portfolios that you manage. And for those that don't know what alternative data is, it's kind of like conventional. Um, so hopefully that gives you a sense that we just are really trying to get granular and understanding all of the local activity of finance. So I think I just heard you say that maps is not a word that you like. And so that begs the question, <laughs> you have to tell me why. Well, it's I'm going to get in trouble with my financial geography colleagues, of which there are some in the world, uh, because maps is kind of an easy way out, right? Like people are like, oh, geography, maps. Um, but it's not quite right, right? That's cartography. Um, and so oh, I just had a dog show up here. That's good. Uh, so like cartography is not what we do. We're really trying to understand the actors, um, the institutions, the organizations. Um, we're mapping the economic activity at the local level, but it's not just maps, right? And so um, it's that's a little bit too simple. Although I love the map analogy because it actually allows you to think through what modern maps are. We might come to this later, but modern maps are incredible um, ingesters of alternative data. If you think about what, what's going on with your phone and a Google map, it's, it's all about bringing in traffic data, human data, all these new types of data to help you understand where you are in the world and where you're going. And so from my perspective, the map is actually still a really useful way of communicating the way I think about finance. Where's your portfolio? Where are you going in the future? What are the routes you have in order to achieve your objectives? All those kinds of things coming together. That's all part of being a financial geographer and thinking about um, economic and financial activity on a granular local basis. Super interesting. I'd love for you to talk a bit about your work at the Stanford Global Project Center, which you lead. Um, I think I've heard you to say that you, you know, think about these sort of big big picture world problems, but uh, you're also rooted in solutions because if I understand correctly, your school, your center sits in the engineering school. So tell us a bit about the work there. Yeah, so the Global Project Center, it, it's like there are these major projects that we all need to happen in order to continue to live on earth. Um, one of them is like finding solutions to climate change. That's one of the big projects. Another is, how do we move all these people from rural environments into the urban environment? So the transition into the cities, that's another project, many different projects, infrastructure, and all those projects are going to need capital. And so as a financial geographer, I'm very interested in understanding how we get capital from the biggest investors on earth to these projects. And um, our kind of Entering assumption is that if you get the wrong capital behind even the best, most well-designed projects, those projects can still fail. So we need to bring the right capital. It needs to have the right time horizon, constraints, objectives in order to maximize that. And so we study those capital providers. Um, most of my research is on pension funds, sovereign funds, endowments, foundations, how they make decisions, how they think about um, their portfolios, things like that. Now, sitting in the engineering school, we're, we're very lucky in the sense that we have a solutions mandate. So most academics, you know, they, they get the, the task of explaining the world. 
we get the task of trying to understand the world and then engage with it to make it a better place. And so that's like an awesome, uh, from my perspective, as someone who like kind of lives between academia and, and building companies, the mission to go try and solve problems from an academic lens at Stanford is, is fabulous. It's very empowering. So I don't think of pension funds as being particularly nimble or creative. So perhaps we can spend a bit of time talking about that sort of tension. How do you bring innovation into organizations that are essentially designed to be conservative? <laughs> totally. So pension funds are designed to be conservative. You know, like we have the prudent person rule, um, which basically says don't, don't do anything, you know, a prudent person wouldn't do. Well, what's a prudent person? You know, is it your peers? Is it is it Warren Buffett or or what is it? You know, is it Calpers? Um, and then we have fiduciary duty. We have the, the fact that most of these organizations have monopolies over their asset base. So like Calpers will always manage the public employees retirement system. But the people inside Calpers will change, which further kind of pushes them into um, less innovative mindsets because they don't have this threat of exit driving innovation. So, so the, the fact of the matter is we have to come up with like um, shortcuts to get innovation into these organizations. And the first one is a crisis, never waste a good crisis, they say. Uh, the second one is uh, consolidation. And the third one is collaboration. So just I'll just run through them quickly if you don't mind or if you're interested. Yeah, no, I'd love you to, yeah. um, Okay, so uh, crisis, like let's find something that is either clearly a crisis, a potential crisis, um, is embarrassing to motivate the allocation of new resources to something innovative. In my past, I've used the fee and cost um, kind of debate to help pension funds realize they need to change how they're investing. Um, fees and I'm not after the asset management community, but when you see how much wealth the asset management community is accumulating on the back of pension assets, it helps to reveal that to the boards of directors and the trustees who often end with a, and it's that that's the opening to begin to think creatively. So the fee um, question has been a kind of a manufactured crisis that we focused on. The technology um, of these organizations is often quite antiquated. And so what we'll do is we'll reveal the power of technology and use that as a means of driving innovation, new mindsets. Um, the climate crisis is one. So, you know, we've had the fires here in California. We've had the fires in Australia. And Larry Fink coming out and saying that climate um, risk is financial risk was actually a huge um, boon to those of us that take it seriously. Now the trustees and the fiduciaries of these plans are forced to take it seriously. And that means an innovative program. So those types of crises, they, they don't quite fall into the category of this pandemic. And we can talk about that next, but this pandemic will drive innovation in a different way. So that's crises. Um, consolidation is what we see happening in Australia. So Australia is probably the most innovative um, pension market in the world. Uh, those organizations are, um, they're seeing huge inflows in terms of the capital that's coming in thanks to the contribution rules. But at the same time, the regulator is pushing those super funds to combine in order to make a handful of really strong and powerful um, investment organizations. And so that's like one of the few cases on earth where you have this like threat of exit, like some of those super funds are going to go away. And so if you want to be one of the super funds that carries on, you have to be better 
and being better means you know innovating, catching up to the scale that they see in terms of the growth of the assets and the organizations. And so we see that consolidation as a big driver of innovation. And then the last one is collaboration. So if you want to try something innovative, you know, the advice is always to do it with somebody else. You know, let's find a peer that has the same constraints that we do and see if we can combine capital, combine people, combine resources. Um, just the very fact that we're partnering, me a pension fund, you a pension fund means that we're both being prudent uh, because we've convinced another prudent investor to help us. And so this was the book, I, my last book. Reframing finance, we were really talking about the power of this collaborative model to drive innovation and help pension funds um, maximize their return in new ways. Mm -hmm. So, speaking of crises, I know this is at the risk of stating the obvious. We're having a conversation during a global pandemic. And so, one of the questions many people have is what long lasting effects the pandemic might have on human behavior and the way economies work. I guess one thing we're hearing or wondering is, will we see a higher savings rate in the US, for example? So what are your thoughts on things we might see? Yeah. Um, it, is, it is interesting to see how fast we have all transitioned into remote work. So, um, I mean, I was having a conversation today with a CIO of a, of a major pension plan and this individual told me point blank that their staff won't be coming back until September. Well, so if you think about um, this industry, which is often made up of interpersonal relationships and building relationships either through conferences or in-person meetings, there's something transformative that's going to happen as a result of having to exist and raise funds and secure financing all remotely. You know, like... Until this moment, I would have said it's inconceivable that pension funds would allocate capital without ever meeting in person a management team. But now that's going to happen. Like we're going to somehow get over that. And so then the question in terms of how do we operate these investment organizations will be, do we need to have a location in New York? Do we need an overseas office? If I'm based in Sydney, do I have to have a New York office or can I do it through this remote telecommuting? So I think that that's one of the big questions a lot of people will begin to think about what is the value of that local knowledge and can you get that local knowledge through Zoom or Skype or do you have to be in place? Um, that's kind of an institutional answer. In terms of like the interpersonal answer, um, I, I hope that this convinces a lot of people to build buffer funds, savings pools. You know, when, when we had the last financial crisis that was really the catalyst for the launch of sovereign wealth funds around the world, and that was because governments saw the value in self-insuring. So you create a buffer fund, you know, that buffer fund exists to manage some serious risk. You invest that fund in financial markets to reduce the cost of holding these reserves. And then when the crisis comes, you have the reserves. You don't need to turn to the IMF. Well, there's a, you know, there's a potential argument here that people feeling this pain will have a similar reaction sources to do that and to save. Um, I'm not hugely optimistic, given how hard it has been for people to get out of debt. The student loan overhang, um, credit card overhang, you know, whether you believe this data or not, there is data that says 60% of Americans didn't have $400 saved coming into this crisis. So I would love to think that this crisis will be, you know, a flash of lightning and inspiration for a lot of people to get out of debt and, and build a little buffer fund for themselves, their own personal sovereign wealth fund, personal wealth fund. Um, but it, you know, I'm not hugely optimistic. I mean, 
it's very hard. There's a lot of a lot of complicating components there. So talk of sovereign wealth funds and personal wealth funds. I'd love to uh, hear you talk a bit more about this idea that I heard you speak about recently, corporate wealth funds. Um, <laughs> but before, before we go into that, I just want to kind of rewind quickly because I heard another little nugget that you shared that I thought was kind of stunning. Um, and it was sure. that um, back in 2006, I think it was, you plugged in sovereign mm. wealth fund into Google and you got shockingly one result, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So like today, I was like, well, let me just plug it into Google and see what happens. And I'm pretty yeah. sure I saw more like 24 million results. So what happened yeah. in between? And then t- tell us a bit about the corporate wealth funds. Yeah, awesome idea. So I was finishing my doctorate at Oxford in 26, t- 2006 um, timeframe and was trying to think about my postdoc. And there were these entities that keep kept popping up. And uh and sovereign wealth fund was the term I heard. And so I plugged it into Google and there was one result. It was a State Street um, report, actually. And uh, it was written by um, John Nugy and Andrew Rosenob. And it, it wasn't that they invented this organization. They invented a term to describe a whole community of organizations that had existed for a long time, but had um, not been kind of categorized together. So the sovereign wealth fund is an organization that manages capital on behalf of the government. It doesn't owe capital back to um, any individual or corporate. It owes it back to the government. And so the the idea here, the sovereign wealth fund was kind of launched by governments as a means of like managing crises, right? And if you think about each government um, looking to establish these funds, you know, the the emergence of the crisis was the kind of confirmation that they needed to see because all these governments had these wealth funds. They didn't need the IMF. And, um, and so we saw in the crisis, sovereign funds coming in and saving financial institutions, right? They swooped in and, you know, took big stakes in the financial institutions. And as part of that process, the IMF launched this working group, which then was like trying to help these sovereign funds get good governance. And, it became a movement, right? Who are these sovereign ones? What are they up to? It's governments playing in, you know, private capital markets and, uh, you know, all this interesting stuff. And the interesting fact is sovereign wealth funds go back to like the 1850s. So in the United States, we have these things called permanent funds. And so if you really want to understand the origin of sovereign funds, you need to understand Texas and the permanent school fund that was launched in the 1850s. It was a means of that state kind of facilitating intergenerational wealth and managing the monetization of their subsoil assets, which was oil wealth, um, and turning that into financial wealth for the benefit of the long-term. And that word long-term is critical because it was this intergenerational fund And the reason why everybody wanted to build those things was it was flexible capital, it was their capital, and they could, um, in effect, turn around and use that capital for any number of things. We've seen in Ireland, it was originally a pension reserve fund. It was then converted into a strategic investment fund after the crisis. And in this crisis, once again, the strategic investment fund is being converted into a pandemic relief fund, which is investing in a whole bunch of different types of companies and you know, opportunities associated with pandemic relief. 
So these are flexible organizations that are um, sovereign wealth managed for the long term to fill gaps in budgets, et cetera. Right now, coming to your question of like, what could we have a corporate wealth fund? Well, I think we all want to see corporations um, focus on longer term issues. So rather than thinking quarter to quarter or even year to year, we want companies to make longer term plans. And in an era where like these companies are getting hammered for doing share buybacks and then turning around and having to come back and um, ask the government for a bailout. Right. So similar to sovereign wealth funds, you know, they were spending their money and then they had to turn to the IMF. All these companies, you know, they were doing share buybacks because that's turned around from the government. Maybe there's a possibility for self-insurance where as companies build pools of cash, you could actually conceive of an investment strategy that is self-insurance helps these companies make longer term strategies when they want to go into a phase of deep innovation. They could have this sovereign, this corporate wealth fund there to help. Um, finance that innovation in the absence of relying on public markets. And all of this seems, you know, potentially crazy and wacky, but I actually was working on a project with, it was a confidential project where we were actually talking about building a corporate wealth fund for a, a, a company that had a long-term view, wanted to think about sustainable growth and um, saw the value of having this like internal vehicle they could use flexibly to manage a whole range of issues. Interesting. I know you've been thinking a lot about uh, new investment strategies and investor types that might emerge from this crisis. Can you talk a bit more about uh, your views on that? The new strategies that emerge. So each crisis tends to drive some big step change in portfolio management at these big asset owners. So we've already kind of riffed a little bit on why these asset owners are so um, so lacking in innovation or creativity. And so when these crises hit, generally we see some change. Now in the kind of 2001, 2003 timeframe, we um, saw the perfect storm, which combined um, low equity returns with low interest rates. I mean, it seems crazy to think this, but we never thought that could happen together. Um, and that was why we called it the perfect storm. And so liabilities exploded just as the assets were shrinking. And that led a whole bunch of organizations to build um, liability-driven investment strategies. So LDI really emerged out of that, uh, that perfect storm. Coming into the financial crisis of 2008, we thought that product diversification, you know, equities, um, private equity, venture capital, hedge funds, like we thought product diversification was a means of you know, true diversification in the portfolio. What we learned in that crisis was that all these different products move together. They're correlated. It's mostly equity risk. And so coming out of this last crisis, there was a push to do factor-based um, portfolio construction and asset allocation. That was the big step change. In addition to this movement to internalize asset management. So um, on the one hand, people were saying, look, we don't like the diversification we're getting out of a pure product, so let's think in terms of risk factors. And on the other hand, let's stop relying on the asset management community to do the, all the investing. Let's also take some ownership over investing ourselves, given how expensive it all is and the poor outcomes we had from the financial crisis. So fast forward to this crisis, what could we expect, right? Like, um, you know, strangely, it doesn't even feel like a crisis right now, given that we're only off like, I don't know, 13%. And if you look at the last 12 months of the NASDAQ, we're up 20% still. And this is, so I, I'm still like 
don't ask me about that because I'm still totally confused. But yeah, so am I. <laughs> let's let's say there's a crisis because there's a lot of people dying and there's a lot of people unemployed. So there's a crisis. Um, I think this crisis is going to be about thinking about the future. So um, how do we integrate ESG? How do we integrate alternative data? This will be the crisis that makes those things real because those are the indicators of future risk and tail risk. So you shouldn't think about ESG risk as purely like, what's the risk today? No, ESG is about what are the potential risks in the future? And those risks will hit occasionally, you know, like this pandemic. There was some probability that this pandemic would hit and have catastrophic consequences. I mean, we had Zika, we had SARS, we had MERS. This was not a new phenomenon. But how many portfolios had run stress tests or resiliency tests to see how they would react if we shut down you know, the global economy for three months? Probably none. Um, and so you know, I think the big change will be we need to be get better at integrating the, that ESG into our decision making. And so I think every major asset management firm will probably have, as of 2001, an integration project and will be pushing to make sustainable investing um, something that isn't just a marketing term but is something real, right? So like last I heard, we had $70 trillion of sustainable capital in the world. If that was real, like we wouldn't have problems anymore. Like we would have solved climate change. We'd have all this beautiful infrastructure. Healthcare would be cheap. Like that's not real. So we that somehow we need to make that sustainable capital actually sustainable and resilient and long-term and not just a marketing slogan. And I think that will be what people will be working on now. Hmm. That's a good segue. I wanted to ask you, so climate change is one of the big projects that uh, is needed to save the human race that you're working on. So before <laughs> yeah. the coronavirus outbreak, it seemed that more investors were looking at companies through the lens of you know, environmental, social governance, you know, ESG practices. Um, it seemed that the interest in ESG, climate change, sustainability was on the rise. Do you think coronavirus will trump the climate virus? Mm. No, I, I climate remains a, like a very hot topic, and <laughs> I guess I mean that both. It was because of the fires in California and the billion animals we lost in Australia already incredibly important, and I think the pandemic will just kind of reinforce everybody's interest in understanding what these massive threats are to you know the built environment to our companies. Um, you know, I think Larry Fink with his letter, uh, you know, love it or hate it, the reality is that had a huge impact on my world because no longer could the fiduciaries um, ignore climate risk. It's now financial risk. And so I I see everywhere investment organizations grappling with this issue. It's um, it's top of mind. And, and the fact that this uh, this current crisis is environmental fine it's you know it's a virus it's not uh out of the where we're all operating in um and it's harming everybody it will push people to build new tools and and to move beyond you know the simple spreadsheets into things that are you know much more robust and resilient and can communicate really important and useful information so i'd love to go back to this topic of maps that we started out with uh, you have this really cool idea that i think you're calling google maps for investment portfolios so just yes. tell us a bit about that yeah, well, we need a Google map for our portfolios, right? So 
if if you if you take a step back and you think about how do the biggest investors on earth um, plan for the future, um, you would be forgiven for thinking that there was incredibly sophisticated tools. Because after all, what is it that investors do? They think about the future. They're modeling cash flows, discounting cash flows. They're doing all these things into the future. But how do they do it? How do they think about all of this? Well, it's in spreadsheets. Okay, so pacing models, um, liquidity, uh, unfunded commitments, rebalancing, even deal sizing today uh, occurs in Microsoft Excel. Now, the problem with that is it's not very good at, um, first of all, being error-free. These are error-prone tools. Often they're individual. They're sitting in individuals' consume. Um, computers on their desktops or maybe in a shared drive. You get these zombie spreadsheets. Nobody knows, is this the latest one or is that the latest one? Who's caring for this assumption? You know, all this stuff is like, um, it feels a little bit amateur. Now, I think spreadsheets are great for modeling, you know, experiments or innovations, but it's not institutional grade um, tool, okay? You need professional software. And so the reason we think about portfolio navigation or portfolio maps is because of what we've seen with the power of Google Maps, Apple Maps, Waze, all these platforms that combine different data sets to give you an understanding of where you are, where you're going, what your final destination is, and what options you have. You can optimize for you know, avoiding tolls, avoiding traffic, avoiding freeways, um, avoiding, you know, the game getting out with the potential for track, like all these different things that allow that this simple device allows you to do. And that simple device, it knows where you are thanks to GPS. Um, it knows where you're going because of smart search and the ability to pinpoint. And it knows the routes because again, it has satellites pointing down, it has the user behavior, has the traffic, it has all the things modeled in there. And we need the exact same thing for investors thinking about the future. Where is your portfolio today? Well, unfortunately, a lot of organizations still don't have great data on where they are in the moment. You know, it's like sitting across different tools. Um, custodians have it. And if you have a lot of alternative assets, that's delayed. And so finding a way of getting that GPS dialed in is a big part of the project that we think needs to happen. Where are you sitting today? Then the second input, which is similar to the Google map, is where are we going? What are the future um, goals and objectives, right? And um, that is, you know, how much do we need in private equity to meet our return target? Uh, what are the outflows that we can expect over the next, you know, 10 years to pay for the pensions that we've promised or the university that we have to keep funded? So you need to define quantitatively what your destination is. And once we have the destination quantitatively defined with constraints and asset allocation and things like that, then we can start to get really smart about how we connect the two, where we are today and where we're going tomorrow. And understanding those roots and whether you optimize for low complexity, low fee, whether you optimize for high complexity, high fee, whatever it is, we can begin to understand the different trade-offs and see what has the best value for money. And even more importantly, once we have this kind of a portfolio map available, in my um Kind of a set of assumptions. I think that's how we will begin to integrate ESG and alternative data into everything we do. Right now, the biggest challenge is that word integration. 
we can't integrate environmental, social governance criteria into our decision-making until we have something that moves us beyond the spreadsheet. We need, we need the Google map. We need to be able to say, look, we want to optimize for low carbon. How do we do that? What are the set of options? Well, until you have that kind of a portfolio map, it's really hard to do that. And so that's, you know, that's the vision. And that's one of the big projects I've been working on. So what's the timeline here? I mean, when do you think you, we might be able to see this portfolio map in, in reality? I mean, we're close. So one of the projects that I've been doing um, has the projection part. Uh, so defining where you're going and understanding how we model between where you are today and where you're going. Um, there's a bunch of companies trying to solve the where you are today part. Um, Adapar, uh, Aladdin, State Street GX, like th these are like the, the big players and like, where is your portfolio today? And so finding ways for like the people thinking about projections to sit on top of that data or to API in there um, is kind of like the, the first step. It's like the MapQuest version where, you know, we're still like not quite in a fully um, integrated environment. But I think we're coming close. This crisis will be the inspiration for somebody to do a roll-up and, and build like the most integrated uh, portfolio map and, and really try to empower the community of long-term investors to think differently. I mean, if you, you think of it this way, this is like the, my favorite analogy. Like if you're driving down the street, you don't really care what type of gas you're putting in your car. But if you're driving across the country, then you probably care. Because the probability of the you know some catastrophic engine failure happening if you're trying to cross the Rockies is much different. But right now, the tools we use to like assess um, whether or not one investor should be optimizing for sustainable fuel versus different fuel those those are the same tools today. You know that we don't differentiate between time. The time horizon of a, of an investor doesn't actually influence all that much terms of the tools we use, what we recommend. But once we know the destination, we can say, actually, the, the ESG matters because of your time horizon, or it matters because of you know, the road you're traveling. You're traveling a road where ESG really matters versus, I know I'm really taking this analogy to the very end, but um, you know, like where you're driving and what car you're driving and where are you going, like all that stuff matters. And like the really smart routing should take that all into consideration. And that's what we deserve as an investment community. We need that. So earlier on, I triggered a memory, you, you talked about zombie spreadsheets. And that made me think of this word that I heard you say recently on a webinar that I, I just love, spreadsheet aside, or the mass destruction of spreadsheets. <laughs> I mean, I, I personally hate Excel, but a lot of people love it. But it sounds like you wanted to go the way of the dodo. Um, yeah, spreadsheet aside was like off the cuff there, but it, I think it communicates like part of what I'm trying to, to push, which is institutional grade decisions deserve institutional grade tools. And so when you're a giant pension fund making billion dollars decisions around pacing, can we get, can we move beyond the spreadsheet so that, you know, when your chief investment officer or head of asset allocation is looking at the available options, they understand that all the assumptions powering everything in their dashboard are coherent. You know, the interest rate assumption for the infrastructure team is the same interest rate as the real estate team. 
that all these different things are being reconciled and managed correctly. The data is cleansed. And, and so what I want is those billion dollars decisions to be made without error. Unfortunately, as part of this project of the portfolio maps, um, every time we've dug into one of those spreadsheets, and those spreadsheets are remarkable, like they push the boundaries of what you could ever imagine a spreadsheet could do. In 2018, we hit F9 on a spreadsheet, took 30 minutes to reload. It was like I was back in analyst investment banking in 1999. You know, it, this is like astounding. Um, so they're taking that tool to the very maximum, and they're brilliant people, but it's the max. It's time to move beyond that and into this modern era of big data, you know, AI, analytics, all the good stuff that come uh, as you graduate beyond the spreadsheet. So I just want to briefly touch on, I guess it's your equation for finance. Uh, you think of it as data plus privileged networks. So I'd love you to expand sure. that just a little bit and also why you think finance is, is really ripe for tech disruption. Yeah, so if you're an organization that is trying to outperform, so you, you, you are seeking alpha, which by the way is almost every single pension fund because they they have um you know a future obligation that is unfunded and so they need outperformance to have kind of any chance of meeting those obligations without either cutting benefits or asking sponsors to contribute more they're turning to the investment teams to outperform in order to reduce the cost of these future liabilities so we have all these organizations that are trying to outperform you know it's a little bit like like, like wobegon like we're all above average you know um well, how do we end up above average? Like we need some insight. And in general, what we find is those insights come out of data or people. And you can even view people as qualitative data, but um, they're data or people. And so in this industry of finance, this industry where we really haven't technologized yet, uh, especially in the asset owner community. Now there's a lot of projects like, can we get our data in order? Um, do we need a risk system here? There's a lot going on now, and especially over the last five years. But for the most part, it's still that the, the organizations that should outperform are those that um, have great data, mostly analytics built on that data. So data is nothing without the analysis, right? So you need great data and analytics together, and you need great networks to bring ideas, to bring privileged access to opportunities to get you into funds or companies or transactions, whatever. The combination of those two great data and analytics and great networks is like the holy grail for being an amazing investor. And, and what gives me hope that technology will kind of transform this industry and make it potentially an industry in which the long-term asset owners really excel and kind of um, balance the playing or you know level the playing field, if you will, with the intermediaries is the fact that those are things, data and analytics and network, Facebook and LinkedIn are networking solutions. Um, you know, like Palantir is a data and analytics company. Like it, it, Google's a data and analytics company. So the power of technology is just sitting there ready to come in and transform our industry. Um, but, you know, we just need to get some of the basics in place, like good data architecture and, uh, and perhaps a more innovative mindset in order to transform these, these businesses. So I'd love to end on what, what I call the ray of sunshine question. Um, and so my question to you is, what do you believe will be one positive, long-lasting outcome of the COVID-19 crisis? Probably less travel. Um, 
my friend uh, uh, Tom Baruch told me the other day, he said, um, this is a black swan that's leading to a green swan. And, and the green swan is like, look, you know, the green swan is the unexpected outcome that's positive for the world in terms of the environment, carbon. And if you think about Tom's point, it's like, we're not on the roads, you know, we're, we're not in airplanes and we have an opportunity to redefine how we engage with the world now that we've taken a break from it and been huddled up in our, you know, abodes for a long time. Um, and, and I like that idea that like, you know, this green swan is an opportunity for us to redefine what it is we're doing. And so, you know, we shouldn't waste it. That's his point, you know, Tom Baruch's point that we shouldn't waste this opportunity to reconsider and, and redefine, um, how we operate. Like, do, do I, Ashby Monk need to go to Australia six times a year? Like I've been going probably not, you know, I just led a big project, um, in Sydney from California. And I did it on Zoom. So, yeah, maybe maybe the travel industry is going to continue to feel the pain for a little bit longer. Yeah. Ashby, it's been a real pleasure, a fascinating conversation. Uh, thank you. And to you and your family and everyone who's uh, listening, please stay safe out there. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I am Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.